we are finishing up our summer series, and this series has been called Summer Shorts, uh, which I thought was funny and aptly named. We've been studying a different short book of the Bible every week, which is a little bit ambitious, actually, um, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this morning, we're finishing up with the second to last book of the Bible. Uh, and this is the penultimate book of Scripture, if you will. Um, and the, this is the book of Jude. And this has been a pretty neat series for me this summer. As I've been thinking, um, I, most of the books we've studied, I have not been super familiar with. I probably studied them in seminary or read them way, way back when, but I, they were not fresh in my memory. And Jude is actually no exception to this. Uh, and it's in the very back of the Bible, right? It's only one chapter long. And it's too short to really plan a Bible study or a sermon series on. And so I think we tend to skip over this book. When we flip to the back of our Bibles, we usually flip to Revelation, right? And not necessarily Jude. But Jude is in our Bibles for a reason. And I think it's where it is in our Bibles for reasons. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, why do we have this little book? But first, before we dive in, let's pray together uh, for our time together and for Jack and Elizabeth. God, we give you thanks for this morning, for the beautiful sun streaming in, God, as we are uh, finishing out this beautiful summer you've gift gifted us with. Lord, we pray that now as we dive into your word, into this little book, that you would expand our minds to understand it more deeply, God, to understand why you have placed it in our midst even this morning. And God, we lift up Jack and Elizabeth to you. We ask that you would be with them as they finish their trip, that God, the experiences they've shared together this week would be strengthening the roots of their marriage for another 15 years and beyond to come. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a question, and it is not a rhetorical question, so I actually want a show of hands. Who went outside and watched the eclipse on Monday? Nice. Okay, did anyone not see it at all? Didn't get a chance to go outside? I know there are probably some who can't, couldn't. And then finally, who drove or flew uh, into the zone of totality? Awesome. Okay. That's about representative of how I've experienced it. Perfect. Well, I'm someone who gets really excited about anything that happens out of the ordinary, um, especially that happens to like everyone collectively. I love snow for this reason. I don't actually like love the stuff of snow that much, but I love that it stops everything in our city when it snows, especially when it snows a lot. I love that. And in the wintertime, my husband can attest to this, I can tell you the forecast 15 days out without looking every day because I am always looking to see if snow might be in the forecast. And I love thunderstorms and windstorms. Um, and even the crazy hot weather we had a few weeks ago, right? It interrupted things. Everyone went outside in the evenings. Did you notice that? Because it was so hot inside. Um, so an eclipse right up my alley, right? I bought my glasses when they were still $1.99 at Fred Meyer before they ran out. And I knew all the details, like months in advance. I knew that the eclipse was going to be at its height here at 10.21 a.m., and I knew uh, it started at 9.08. It finished at 11.38. I could repeat all of this to you. And I told dozens of people, like, all about how this was happening, make sure they were paying attention. So I was excited. But at the same time, I was actually quite judgmental of people who were driving into the zone of totality. 
I was like, you're spending how much to stay there for a night? I'm so sorry. To, I'm going to redeem myself for you for if you did this, but you're spending how much? You're, how much traffic are you going to face? I mean, I was reading all the blogs about the traffic apocalypse that was going to happen, and I thought, really? Like, it's two minutes of darkness, and you're going to do all of this extra work. How could driving for like 10 plus hours, right, for 8% more eclipse be worth it? Well, Monday morning came, and I did watch the eclipse for, with a bunch of Bethany staff, actually. It was really fun. And it was incredible. And in that moment, and you probably know what I'm going to say, I instantly realized I'd made a mistake. And I <laughs> should have gone to the zone of totality. <laughs> I knew it. And I looked at the height of the eclipse, and I was so wowed, and I was like, yep, 7%, 8% was worth it. And Monday night, I called my folks, and my parents had gotten to the zone of totality. They, I had a place to stay for free. And um, my dad could not stop gushing about how amazing it was. My dad, who's 62-ish years old, and is not that easily impressed. And he is like, it was amazing. It was the best thing I ever saw. So I had to admit I was wrong. And it turns out, buying the $1.99 glasses and walking outside during my workday as cool as it was, was not the same. It didn't compare to the experience, I don't think, of committing the time and resources to be all in, to experience the whole thing. And I think our relationship with God has some parallels to that. And I think that's what we're going to see, actually, as we study Jude today. That if we're not all in, if we're not paying attention and pursuing the fullness of our faith, we're actually missing out and we're risking drifting away. We risk getting so distracted and deluding our lives so much that when God is doing something big, we forget to even look up and notice. And so that's kind of what we're going to be thinking about today. But before we dive into Jude's letter, I want to briefly give you some background info. And it will be brief because we don't know a whole lot about this little letter. Uh, there's not a whole lot that scholars know for sure. We believe it was written by one of Jesus' brothers, actually, his brother named Jude, and the clue to this is in the first verse where Jude introduces himself as the brother of James. And it's most likely uh, that the James he refers to is the brother of Jesus. So that's how we, we know. It's also likely the letter was written about 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we don't know a whole lot beyond that, actually. We don't know what church or what city it was written to or what church is, it could be multiple. We don't know who these false teachers specifically might have been, who he's so concerned about. But we do know that it was likely a church uh, or a set of churches that were comprised of mostly Jewish background people, people who um, were Jews who accepted Christ as their Messiah. And we know that they're struggling. In verse 3, you heard this read, we learned that Jude actually wanted to write them a nice, positive, encouraging letter about the joy of salvation. But he's so alarmed at what's happening in the church, he ends up writing a pretty severe warning to them instead. Uh, the first 19 verses actually are uh, pretty harsh. I only had us read a few, and they were pretty harsh. So let's imagine for a moment <clears throat> that we are that church that just got this letter. This helps me sometimes when I'm trying to connect with the text is to picture myself in it. And so I'm gonna invite us to picture ourselves as the one of the people in this church. So if you have to close your eyes or keep them open, whatever, 
But imagine with me, about 25 years ago, you were a young Jewish 20-something, and some folks came to your town and started talking about this rabbi named Jesus. And they made some incredible claims. They say he died and that they saw him die, and then they say that he was raised again, and they actually saw him risen from the dead. And not only that, but everything else about his life seems like it might fit with the scriptures about who the Messiah would be. And so after you've listened to these apostles for a while, you're all in. You have decided this Jesus was and is the Messiah. The scriptures foretold. And so you stake your life on it. And you join a church, right, that the apostles helped start. And for a while, you're actually waking up every morning thinking, Jesus might come back today. Jesus might come back today. Is this the day? But now, 25 years have gone by. And you're starting to wonder whether he's going to return before you die. Because you're in your 50s now. And maybe a little bit of doubt has crept in for you. There's people in your church who are actually starting to voice this out loud. What if Jesus isn't coming back? What if we're wrong? And you've noticed some of your friends aren't necessarily coming to worship as often. And when we gather for our meals together, where we used to celebrate what was so great about what God was doing in our midst and the healing and the miracles we were seeing, now it seems like all anyone does is complain about what God's not doing. And what's more, being a Christian in this city is hard. People have been dragged to prison for preaching about Jesus. And you have been ostracized from some of the businesses in town. And people are boycotting yours because you're, they found out that you're a Christian. And now people are starting to talk about how, hey, Jesus was perfect so that we don't have to be, right? Really, you should just be listening to what your body wants. God created your body. It's good. Just listen to what it says. And even though this sounds just a little bit off to you, it also sounds appealing. Maybe God just doesn't really care what I do. All that matters is that if he comes back, you know, I'll, I believed in him. Okay, I, uh, sorry. If I got carried away, I apologize. But <clears throat> I want us to pay attention to whether any of those thoughts have slipped into our thinking. Maybe now, maybe in our past, and maybe we, as a church collectively at least, might need this warning as much as the church in 60 AD, 30 years after Jesus lived. And what I think we'll find, and this is written in your bulletin, I think, Jude was concerned the church was drifting away from the truth of God. And so he's urging, God, he's urging the church, God's people, to earnestly contend for their faith in Christ. And this morning, we're going to be studying what that means, to contend for faith. And I think we'll be reminded that Jude has it right, that faith can't remain static. If we're not actively moving closer to God, we are risking drifting away. And there's three sections to Jude's letter that we'll examine. And the first part, which I mentioned already, is a long warning. The second is a strategy for contending for faith. And the third is finally a promise about what happens when we do. So let's start with the, the harsh, the, the warning part, and we'll move to the more hopeful part of the letter. So if you've read Jude lately, you know it's not an uplifting book. To be honest, when I first started studying it, I was, I was a little bit intimidated because it is strongly worded. And Jude is trying, though, to help the church pay attention to what he's saying. He's trying to catch their attention. And he does so by first reminding them that there's consequences that come with moving away from God. 
And there's actually a long history of this happening, and Jude, I think, is aware of it. So remember with me, Noah, right, sees this incredible thing happen, horrible and incredible. The people around him die in a flood, and God saves him and his family and animals, and he is miraculously then the new father of the world. It's an amazing thing that happens to him. And yet by the end of his life, he's drinking too much. His descendants, his children and his children's children decide, become so arrogant that they decide to build a tower, right? That could actually reach God. They think they are that similar to God. So he experiences this amazing thing and, and drift happens, right? The people of Israel are freed from slavery in Egypt. They watch the Red Sea parted before their eyes so they can walk through. This always gets me. And then what happens? A few years later, they're sitting by a mountain and Moses and God are talking on the top of the mountain and what they take too long. And what do they do? They decide we can build our own God, right? A few years after their God rescued them in such a miraculous way. And it happens to us, friends, when we can experience God in powerful ways, we still can risk drifting away from our faith. Revelation, the next book in the Bible, warns about this lukewarm faith. And Jude is warning the church, don't let this happen to you. You have heard from firsthand accounts of this person, Jesus. Your faith was on fire. Don't lose sight of it. Don't let go of it. So he has a couple specific ways that this is happening in the church that I want to touch on. There's actually quite a few different ways it's happening, given his 19 verses of warning, but there's two I want to touch on. And first is this idea that as long as I believe in Jesus, I can do pretty much anything I want, right? I already have my ticket to heaven. God has God has to forgive me, kind of. How I live doesn't really matter. I can't earn salvation, so why change anything about the way I live? Now, this is the extreme version of this, and the, it's the concept of cheap grace. This is a term Bonhoeffer used in The Cost of Discipleship, a book he wrote. He was trying to say we cheapen what we have in Christ when we choose to accept him as our Savior, but not as our Lord right? When we say, I like the salvation part, not really the discipleship part. I'm going to pick and choose. And this concept actually creeps into our culture in the church today, I think. I was thinking about how in the 1950s, and even more recently, depending on what part of our uh, country you live in, the church in America used to be almost uniformly all about making strict rules about how to live, right? So you didn't, you knew what you did not do as a Christian. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't play cards. I mean, there's a long list of things you don't do. And it made it very cut and dry. Today, we're more enlightened, right? I mean, it's not so simple. We know this as just painting behaviors with broad brushes and saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. That's not what the Christian walk is about. But with this newfound freedom... I think there's a danger, and the danger is that we start to believe that what we do in our daily lives doesn't actually matter that much to God, that all He cares about is our faith, that we are reading our Bible every morning, right, that we are maybe going to church a couple times a month, but He doesn't care about these other things about my life. 
And this starts to slip into our thinking, even about these normal, quote-unquote, vices, right? Things like, it applies to things like drinking and sex and smoking. It also applies to how we think about things that are more socially acceptable. God doesn't care about how I spend my money. God doesn't care about my political standing or where I buy my clothes or what TV shows I watch. God doesn't really care. He cares about me doing these other things, these spiritual things. And Jude warns us that, in fact, it all matters to God. And if we aren't constantly seeking to bring everything in our lives under the lordship of Christ, we're not asking God about even the smallest behaviors, then the inevitable fact, I think Jude is saying, is that we'll be naturally slipping farther away from Christ and from our first love, or what we would hope is our first love. God desires every part of us, and that lie that what we do doesn't matter to God will secretly and slowly draw us away from Him. So that's one area, and a related area of warning is about these false teachers in the midst of the community. And the imagery in verses 12 through 13 is pretty stunning. I had us read it. I can almost see Jude writing this letter and kind of getting on a roll and just keep going, like image after image is coming to him. So first, he calls these false teachers blemishes at your love feast, which is not a pretty picture. But I was looking at the Greek word for blemishes in the NIV there literally means hidden reefs. So he's saying these teachers are like hidden reefs just under the surface of the water. Now, love feasts, which is where he's using this analogy, were kind of a common practice for the early church, and it'd be something I'd love to see in our midst someday. Believers would gather for a meal and then share what God was doing in their midst. But Jude is suggesting there's people at these love feasts hiding just under the surface who can actually cause your church to run aground, which is what a hidden reef can do, right? Who could completely derail the trajectory you're on. It's a warning. It's letting them know there's actual danger out there. And then the next few analogies essentially tell you how to see these hidden reefs for what they are. And he says they are people who essentially bear no fruit in the Christian faith. They are shepherds who don't offer any food to their sheep. They are waves that produce only dirty foam. And they are like apple trees at harvest without a single apple, to give a little context to the fruit. And that they are in fact uprooted. They're not even rooted to the ground anymore. And I think we have a tendency in the church to say, oh, that person's a pastor, or they're a minister, or they're such a good Christian, they read their Bible all the time, they know so much, but, and just blindly kind of believe and take in what people say. And if they're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, if they are not bearing love and joy and peace, in fact, in greater measure in their lives, they may not be worth listening to. That's what Jude's warning. And I think we need these same warnings today. Just like every generation in the Bible and truly many generations in the church after the Bible scriptures end, there is a tendency towards wandering from God. In our natural state, if we are not contending actively for our faith in Christ, we're losing ground. And I want to stop and pay attention before we move into our second point about this word Jude uses, contend, to contend for our faith. Because it's a unique one. It's actually only found here in all of the Greek New Testament. It's only found in Jude. And the Greek word I'm going to nerd out is apagonizomai. And it means to contend with something like someone like in a wrestling match. 
And the root is agonizomai, and it's used a few other times. Paul, though, uses it maybe most notably in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. 20, verse 24 of chapter 9, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The word that has the same root as contend is the word compete here. But we're not competing against one another, hopefully. We are competing against the forces that would draw us away from God. It is a very active word, right? It's talking about something that needs constant attention, much like training for a race or a marathon is, as I know many of you have in this room, even this summer. I've mentioned in other sermons, so I apologize if this is a repeat, a little bit of a story short. Uh, I, at some points in my life, have tried to be a runner. And I don't have a runner's body. Even when I was in much better shape than I am today, I just, it just never came naturally to me. But when I was a few years out of college, someone convinced me to run the relay race to the coast. This is the part I've shared before. I naively said yes, and I had never run more than a mile straight, and I was suddenly expected to be able to run six miles three different times over the course of 24 hours, and I had a team depending on me, so I was pretty motivated to figure out how to do this. And so in order to get my body in shape for that, to be able to even physically run for that long, I had to train almost every day for over six months, right? That's what it takes to do something that you maybe aren't naturally able to do. And I got sick once, I remember, during that training period, couldn't train for a couple weeks, came back to it months behind. I mean, it was shocking how quickly my body was like, yeah, I don't, I'm not really ready for this running thing. No, I successfully actually did the Hood to Coast, not once, but twice, two years in a row. So some of my training did sort of overlap. But it was 10 years ago. And guess what? Running a mile now is still a big accomplishment for me. I have lost all that work I put in. It's gone because I did not keep up with it. And I think this is how Jude and Paul see our faith in Christ. It requires our attention every day or we lose ground. And I will wrap this up at the end. We'll talk about the promise that God is never letting go of us, but we can lose some of what our memory is of how God has interacted in our life. It just seems to be our human nature. So how do we actively contend for our faith? What does that even look like? Well, after long 19 verses of warning, uh, Jude actually gives us a strategy. And I want to make a quick comment about what Jude's strategy isn't. Because many churches, I think, have maybe read this letter and assumed the first thing to do is find those false teachers. Get them out of here. Excommunicate them, right? Judge the people who are doing this wrong. Their strategy is judgment and condemnation. And if you look closely at Jude, his strategy is different. So the first thing he says It's to direct the people to build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit means inviting, I think it means inviting God to direct your prayers. It's not just praying for what you think you want in a given moment, but it's actually taking time to listen to the Spirit. 
And it's key. So often when I pray, I find myself listing things off to God. And it's not all selfish. I, uh, I will often be listing off other people. I'll be listing off our church, uh, praying for my next meeting as I drive to it. None of those things are bad. But the discipline of praying in the Spirit, of not only talking, but of spending time listening to God, is hard. We actually, there's people trained as spiritual directors now to help us do this. There's a few in our church specifically there to help us listen to what God is saying, how God is speaking to us. God is speaking to us, I believe, so often, and yet it is a discipline to learn how to listen. And this is exactly what Jesus says is our first line of defense against allowing our faith to become stagnant. And the second thing he says is keep yourselves in the love of God. And you might also say this, uh, hold yourself fast in the love of God. And this, when I read it, felt a little nebulous to me. Like, okay, so I should just think about how much God loves me. Is that how you do this? But uh, in more study, Jesus actually spells this out for us in John 15. Verses 9 and 10 say, As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, So have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. This is actually repeated a few times over by Jesus, that to love him is to obey his teachings. But it's interesting that the wording in Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. We know that God's love for us, hopefully, hopefully we know that God's love for us is without limits. It does not matter what we do. That part is so true. God's love for us is without condition. God doesn't say, I'll love you if you keep my commands. He doesn't say, I'll love you if you do X, Y, and Z. But what Jesus says, and what Jude, I think, is referring to, is keep my commands and you'll remain in my love. You'll be enveloped by it. You'll experience it. You'll know what it is to be deeply, utterly loved. And it's almost a paradox, I I think, that God's love for us is unconditional, but we will struggle to believe and experience it if we don't actively abide in his love. And we actively abide in that love in part by seeking to submit every part of our lives to God, by seeking to obey what we know to be his teaching. I have an example of this that's not perfect, so I will caveat it up front. But growing up, I only had one sibling. It was just me and my little sister. She was three years younger than me. And I was the quintessential first child. Uh, I, I tried to do everything right the first time. I rarely disobeyed my parents. I hated conflict, and my sister, some of the time, was a pretty stereotypical youngest child. And she pushed boundaries, she didn't follow all the rules all the time. And once we were old enough to be home uh, alone for a few hours every day between school ending and my mom getting home from work each afternoon, we were assigned chores to do, which is good on my mom, great that she did that. And of course, I would get home and do mine right away then I would not have to worry about them. And my sister enjoyed living life on the edge sometimes, and she would not do hers. This is a classic, I'm sure, example to many of us who have kids or were kids. And so she'd get, up in a, she'd get caught up in a TV show or in a book, and my mom would come home, and there would be a consequence. And sometimes there'd be conflict, and I hated it, because I thought it's so simple. You do the chores, you and mom have a peaceful, conflict-free relationship. 
But of course, it's not that simple when you're a tween or a teenager and you are a younger child and you're trying to find your independence. I get it. Now, I get it. But this, I think this might help us understand, imperfectly maybe, but what Jesus means in John 15. He says, look, I will always love you, just as my mom loved my sister through all of that conflict. But for you to experience perhaps the deepest possible connection and intimacy with me, you need to obey me. Or you'll be facing consequences. You'll find yourself having a hard time. The reason it's not a perfect analogy is that there are also powerful experiences of God's love when we fail and we don't obey and we have to repent. And I recognize that. But I want us to think about what abiding in God's love looks like. It looks like trying to follow him in every facet of our lives. Okay. So that's the second strategy. The third part of the strategy has to do with other people. And this is where we really see Jude surprise us, as I mentioned at the beginning. Because if you heard, there's people actively teaching against Christ, against Jesus in the church. And if you heard this was happening in our midst and people were like actively talking about how Jesus didn't matter, you didn't need to believe in Jesus at all, and trying to teach that, what would our reaction be? Probably let's root them out. Let's make sure they know they can't spread that around here, right? Maybe let's make sure they're not welcome here. Although Bethany is a fairly this isn't a huge struggle for us at Bethany. But what Jude says as he lays out this strategy is, be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, and to others, probably to the teachers themselves at this point, show mercy mixed with fear. Now this is not saying blindly accept everyone, nor is it saying tolerate everyone and everything, but it's saying have mercy towards those who are doubting in the faith. Catch those who stumble and fall. And even to those who are actively working against God, show them mercy mixed with fear. Meaning don't stand for anything they do which would harm the church. But remember that even they are not beyond God's love and redemption. We can be a church that's marked by our mercy, not our condemnation. We can withstand a great deal of adversity, I think, as a community, if we did these three things, if we pray in the Spirit, if we hold ourselves in the love of God by seeking to obey Him and by having a great deal of mercy for one another. So this is our strategy. Jude has taken pains in this letter to warn us that if we're not actively contending for our faith, and remember it's like a wrestling match is what he's referring to, we could find ourselves sidetracked and drifting. So this is our strategy. And then now, at the very end of the letter, comes the most encouraging part of the whole thing, in my opinion. And it comes sort of in the form of a benediction. But Jude's conclusion in verse 24 and 25 says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, Jesus, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. But did you catch the promise that's in there? to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. God is holding on to you. God is holding on to us. Faith is not a one-way effort that we just exert towards God. It's actually in Romans 12 verse 3, we find that faith itself is a gift. We're not called to just magic faith out of thin air. 
but to actually just hold on to the faith we've been giving. So, given. So if you have doubts, this isn't meant to say, silence those doubts. It's meant to say, hold on to the faith you do have. And if you stumble, it's not about shaming you into perfection. Jude is not telling us to snap our fingers and just be perfect Christians. If that were the message, we'd all go home really discouraged. And we'd be in danger of thinking we can earn somehow God's love and God's saving grace. But this is about what trajectory we're on, I think. What direction are we moving? God has already covered every single one of us with the blood of Christ. You are without blame and without sin in his eyes. Hear that. But faith isn't about just saying one prayer, one time, calling it good. And it's not about just being saved. It's about experiencing the abundant life that Jesus desires for us and promises us. It's the life we're created for. And so my question for us this morning is what direction are you moving? Are you moving toward God? Because God's already moving towards you. He will move towards you no matter where you are at on this trajectory, even if you are facing the opposite direction. But there is life and there's healing and there's abundance found when we turn towards God and start moving in his direction. It's the direction we were created to move. One of my favorite images of this comes from the book The Last Battle, right, in the Chronicles of Narnia. You may have have read it. It's by C.S. Lewis. At the very end of the book, the main characters have reached the end of the land of Narnia, and they've arrived at what they call the Western Wild. And the characters are marveling because they can't get enough of this place. And they keep egging each other on. Let's go further up, further in, further up, further in. And over and over again. And I want to read you a passage from the very end of the book. And you'll just have to use your imaginations again because there's mystical characters in this book, talking animals and such. But just listen. Further up and further in roared the unicorn and no one held back. They charged straight at the foot of the hill and then found themselves running up it almost as water from a broken rave runs up the rock out at the point of some bay. Though the slope was nearly as steep as the roof of a house and the grass was smooth as a bowling green, no one slipped. Only when they had reached the very top did they slow up. And that was because they found themselves facing great golden gates. And for a moment, none of them was bold enough to try if the gates would open. They all thought, dare we? Is it right? Could it be meant for us? But while they were still standing like this, a great horn wonderfully loud and sweet, blew from somewhere inside that walled garden and the gates swung open. And what came out was the last thing they expected, a little sleek, bright-eyed, talking mouse. Uh, This is Reap Cheap for those who have read the story. It bowed, a most beautiful bow, and said in its shrill voice, welcome, in the lion's name, come further up and further in. Come further up and further in. This is God's desire for us, that we would constantly press in, press on towards what God has for us. And we're here today because we know at some level we want to go deeper. We want to go further up and further in and experience more of who God is. Paul says it beautifully in Philippians 3. 
He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I haven't already obtained it. I haven't already arrived at this goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus has taken hold of us already. We're invited to press in and take hold right back. We're invited not to settle for 92%, to experience the whole thing. There it is. There's the commitment section. Right? The fullest life we can imagine. And it will require all of us. We won't be able to just sit back and let our faith be part of our life that we drag out on Sundays and every other Wednesday. God wants every part of us. And it's convicting me this week. I have a tendency to sometimes coast through my relationship with God. I compartmentalize it, even in the work I do. And I'm convicted that God wants me to invite him into every part of life. It doesn't mean I stop and wait for God to give me an answer about every decision. That would be paralyzing. It just means inviting God to be with me as I sit on the couch and watch TV with Matt. To be with me as I go to work on a Monday evening. A Monday morning. I don't go to work on Monday evenings usually. <laughs> to, be, to be present with a friend for a drink. And be with me. Guide me so that I can be all in, in the story God's writing, and experience the fullness he wants for me. That is what God desires more than anything for me. So I'm actually going to invite us as we respond this morning, it's going to be a little hard with some background noise, but that's fine, to spend a few moments in silence and in prayer, and to literally start to try to, and maybe you're expert at this already, I am not, Start to try to listen to the Spirit of God speaking to you. Don't try to fill the prayer time, solo prayer time. It's only going to be a few minutes with talking, but just listen. And sometimes the thing that helps me to do this is to uh, imagine myself sitting on a bench and imagine Jesus walking up to me and sitting down next to me, and I just listen. So whatever that might be, but sometimes a mental image helps for you to listen. And the worship band will come back up in a few minutes and we'll worship our God who loves us beyond belief. But let's pray silently now and believe that God is speaking and wants to speak in a way that we can understand. Amen.